Hey, I'm Danny Pincus, the Brand and Partnerships Director here at Future Women. I'm super excited to present this special series to you in partnership with Westfield and Dove. The Westfield Women in Conversation series has been on the road for the past few months. We've traveled to 11 Westfield centers across Australia with some of the country's most recognizable women. Journalist, TV presenter, author, and hashtag crap housewife, Jessica Rowe. Performer, radio host, and glitter lover, M. Rassiano. Journalist, 60 Minutes, and Weekend Today presenter, Alison Langdon. And author and domestic violence advocate, Rosie Batty. This series has been dedicated to celebrating real beauty and empowering confidence in women. You'll hear from these inspiring women who have found their liberation through change in the face of adversity and life's challenges. We spoke to them on topics of style, ageing, motherhood, about relationships with other women, their families, their friends, and most importantly, themselves. Enjoy this candid conversation with M. Rassiano, recorded at Westfield Marion in South Australia. The conversation was hosted by our editor-at-large, Jamila Rusvi. So today, thanks to Westfield, Dove and Future Women, I am very delighted to introduce my friend M. Rassiano. Hello. Oh, I'm on. <laughs> Got my Madonna headset on, guys. I'm fine. When you ask women, how are you at the school gate at work, you'll get, I'm fine. And then I started realising that I was feeling a lot of rage and I couldn't really, I didn't really know why. I just knew I was sick of everyone's shit, but I didn't know what that shit was. Um, so I decided asking my friends when I was writing this show and, and um, I'd get the fine and then I'd grab their arm and look them in the eye and say, no, how are you really? And then the tears usually come yeah. and then the I'm exhausted, the truth started coming out. So I like to ask the people in my life how they are twice. I mean, sometimes you're just being polite, you know, you don't really want to know that, you know, that your husband's prostate's playing up, you don't. But, you know, if you're in the mood to listen, ask twice. It's nice. Try it, try it on Monday. But be ready for an absolute onslaught of emotion because if you're over 30, maybe over 25 and you're a woman at the moment, you've got a lot of pent-up shit going on. <laughs> and if you feel like there's a chance that someone may be able to listen to you and understand, it will just come out of you and all of a sudden you're just gushing to a stranger about your pelvic floors, you know? <laughs> Sorry. I'm fine. Thank you. It's not a scary thing to admit that you're feeling really angry. And I think women from a very young age are encouraged to be good girls, to be polite, to smile, to be liked. And I think we encourage little boys to be respected, but we don't, we, we kind of, little girls think it's more important to be popular. So I, um, I looked, I've kind of done all this research and looked back into why we've ended up in a place where women in Australia, especially, they drink their rage, they eat their rage, they gamble their rage, you know, and they shop their rage instead of actually just acknowledging it. Mm. And um, I think we also, we hide it, we, 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 we secret cry away from our family, we go in the pantry, in the shower, in the car, white knuckled, you know, and it's a great thing about having a baby is you can't wrap me out for the secret crying in the car, so that's been good. But I just, I wanted to understand why women don't say, you know what, hey family, I'm really angry and you're going to do your own washing and I'm exhausted and we, we tend to dress it up and, and disguise it. So this show is a celebration and an encouragement for all the women in the land to put a voice to what's making them angry, to be okay with it. And then I want to help you get out of it and see past it. And I also want to help the men in your life understand what the hell's going on with you. So my show is really important for the dudes to come along too because I'm already telling you guys what you already know, right? You need to bring men in your life with you so you can just sit there going, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a baby having a baby. I was 20 when I fell pregnant. 
I had her at 21 and um, it was really terrifying. I was convinced I was going to kill her every time I touched her, you know, and I was sterilizing blankets and beds. I was sterilizing people's hands. I was like making them put them on steam and burning them before they touched the baby. I was wiping everything down. Um, and now I don't even own a sterilizer. Like the dummies in the dog's mouth and then in the baby's mouth. I don't care. <laughs> it's good for his immunity, guys. Um, yeah, I think I'm just much more confident now. I'm actually amazed having a baby. I had a baby uh, three weeks before I turned 40. And um, this time around, it's just joyful and I feel much more at ease and calm and I know what I'm doing. Like, for instance, at 20, I would have known all of that. I've, I've got the benefit of 20 years of parenting. Yeah. And also, Marcella is an exceptional kid and she teaches me all the time. She's much wiser. She's much thinner. She's much hotter. She's much smarter. Um, she's all the things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that now I've, I don't think I would have been ready for a boy then. Yeah. I think I'm ready to shape a man. I don't know why I punched my hand when I said <laughs> he's what? going to be a staunch feminist, still masculine, but a new masculine, not the old version of masculine, yeah. like a respect for women, but still, you know, around should he be needed? You know, like I'm a really, I'm a staunch feminist, but I will not do the bins. That is a boy job. <laughs> but don't tell me that I can't do the bins. I can. Yeah. I choose not to. We've also got two live-in babysitters, which is amazing. Um, Scott doesn't babysit, he parents. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Your husbands don't help you when they babysit your children. That's their friggin' children. That's called parenting. Can we just remember that, please? Also, don't ever let them use the word help. I'm going to help you around the house. No, idiot. This is where you live also. You're just doing your share, your fair share. Don't ever make them think that they're helping you. Oh, I'm just going to go pick up the kids. That'll help you. No, if you don't pick them up, you'll get in trouble from the cops because it looks like you've abandoned them. <laughs> That idea that your other, that the men around are just are just helping you, it, it's like the, it's like it's a charity, an act of charity. It's not. It's their job, guys. Just remind them of that. What was I talking about? Oh yeah. Well, there was no social media when I was that age. Yeah. So thank God I wouldn't have survived motherhood at 20 if I was being judged on Instagram. Yeah. That that would have ended me and ruined me. So yeah, I think now it's much easier to be criticised and and also. It's much easier to be a bad mother and it's much easier to be a good father. So Scotty gets praised for turning up. Oh, like a woman saw him carry the baby from the car to the pram and said, oh, he's a keeper. I said, what, because his arms work? What? What? Whereas if I put a picture up on Elio, of Elio online and there's a slight twist in his car seat, oh, your baby's going to die in a car crash. You don't care about your baby. The messages I get. So it is so easy to be a bad mum now. It's yeah. so easy to be called a bad mum, but dads are good dads just that they show up, yep. just that they're there helping. Ugh. Um, so I, think, I don't think I would have coped. Now I find myself under much more scrutiny from other women and other mothers. Mm -hmm. It's not often men will be brave enough to criticise me in the comments section because he's got to deal with all of you. You'll never see one dad criticising another dad. Yeah. Oh, mate, that was a crap kick. Um, your kid's going to be terrible at sport. You'll never hear that stuff. Or, yeah. like, um, oh, you wiped her mouth wrong, mate. You've left half the ice cream there. You just don't hear dads doing that. Yeah. It's only mothers criticising other mothers. I think, I think part of it's projecting. I think part of us, you know, are worried that that's something that we might do. So we try and squash it when we see it. It annoys us. I think it makes us feel better if we're feeling crappy to have a stab at someone else. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a really weird thing to do. And, and I, I've never been someone to go to a comment section and criticise. I will do it in my mind. Maybe I'll text a friend a screenshot. But 
I would never write something that I know would ruin another woman's day because already it's tough, guys. Just putting on our undies in the morning and looking in the mirror, you know, and then getting the kids out and then coming home to that stale crime scene of the morning getting ready. You know, it's hard enough. And then to see someone writing someone yuck on your Facebook. So, I don't know, I try, but I don't do it. I would never do something to deliberately make someone else's day worse, except my husband's, but that's different. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, I, I wouldn't have survived that then, but the pressure now is just being judged by other women and mothers, I think. Uh, social media for me has been a lifeline. It's been a way that I'm pretty much exclusively selling tickets. It's enabled yeah. me to be independent from TV stations and radio stations, um, I've been able to find my own tribe and my own audience and, you know, sell directly to you, cut out the middleman, um, you know, give you stuff that's actually valuable and, and, and in return, you know, you guys help me pay my mortgage. I mean, I make stuff for you for my job. I don't do it out of the kindness of my heart. You know that. But I hope that you feel like you get good quality stuff from me and I hope you feel like it's worth it. So the, the social media has given me control over my life. Um, and I think it was tailor-made for someone like me who's just like thought explosion, um, attention deficit situations, and I'm able to just get all the energy out down there. Yeah. I mean, it has to be very closely monitored by people. Four people will check things before I put it up sometimes, you know, (laughs) sometimes. Okay, Scott, is this too much? And he says to me now, if you have to ask that question, don't even bother showing me. The answer is yes. (laughs) Yeah. So social media for me has been... A life-changing thing. So I say to my kids, first of all, never write anything you wouldn't be happy with that person reading. And never write anything you wouldn't say to someone's face. That's the number one rule. Don't ever write anything. And also I remind them that their digital footprint is there forever. So they might be going for an amazing job when they're 21 and this cyberbullying thing might come up about them or they'll be able to find that picture of their boobs. Even though I did tell you to take a picture of your nipples if you haven't had a baby, don't put it online. Um, don't put it in the cloud either. You can't trust the cloud. So I think the, the big rule for the girls is don't write anything you wouldn't say to their face. And if they read anything about themselves, they're like me and that they've got really great people around them to check in with. And, and I say to them, is there any truth in what they've written? Have you done that awful thing? And if they say no, I say, well, that's okay. But it can be pretty devastating for teenage girls to read things about themselves and see photos of themselves and be tagged in things that they thought were private. Um, So, again, they know no pictures of things they wouldn't be happy with their grandmother seeing online, you know, that kind of stuff. But also, you know, you don't want to shame them about their body. You want them to know their bodies are beautiful. And then I'm parenting in an era of I want my girls to be fierce and independent, but I also know that they can't walk alone to their car at night. So how do I make sure that they're safe, but I'm not limiting them? It's a really hard time at the moment. So, you know, and, and when I figure it out, I'll let you know, but they've got to arm themselves like Wolverine with a set of keys now. I don't let them go anywhere alone. I'm Italian and I'm overprotective. I'm a tiger mum, I'm a helicopter mum, I'm a black ops mum. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to be a good mum, a good wife, um, you know, a good business lady. Mm. I I find like when I'm with one job, I'm worried about the rest. I feel like I'm failing everyone because I'm not giving 100% all the time. My brain Mm. is always divided. So when I'm working, I'm thinking about, oh God, I hope the dinner's being cooked. I can't get home to washing. Oh my God. And when I'm washing, I'm thinking about the show or or the radio thing I've got coming up. So I feel like I'm always a bit scattered and divided. So not doing my best anywhere. So you have to kind of know the good enough is okay rather than PB every time. So I've had to really work on not trying to get a PB, a personal best with everything I do, just accept everyone's alive, everyone knows they're loved, 
the house looks like a bomb site. CSI crime light would just explode in here, but that's okay. I think we're working harder now. Like we're now, we're more ambitious and we're going out and wanting to do our own businesses. But I don't think the home front is meaning women's ambition and want and desire and rightly so to want to go out and make something of themselves. I think we're doing a full-time job at work. And then I think we're coming home and doing a full-time job. And then managing the mental load is the third full-time job. And that mm. mental load doesn't get mentioned enough where you're like, okay, I am going away for work for this weekend. It's Monday. So you've got to take a four-day run up to leaving the house for, for the weekend. Okay, okay, the dog's got to go to the vet. I've got to do the washing. Got to make sure there's school lunches. Got to make sure there's stuff in the freezer. I've got to make sure I've vacuumed. Got to make sure that I've rang my mum. Got to make sure that my mother-in-law has gone to the doctor's appointment. And this is before you've even done the stuff. Yeah. You're exhausted. You're just so tired from planning to make sure nothing stuffs up so that you can go away and earn money for the family. So I get exhausted trying to circumnavigate stuff-ups. Yeah. Because I know I'm going to have to come home and deal with that stuff-up. Yeah. So it's this, this, this circle you get in. But I think we also do ourselves a disservice by not allowing our partners, our significant others or our kids to do a crap job at something. You know, so we've got a certain way we like the benches done or we've got a certain way we like things done. And if we ask another family member to do it and their standard isn't as high as ours, you can't yell at them. I've tried. It doesn't work. You can't treat them like naughty puppies and rub their noses in the crumbs on the bench. I've done that too. <laughs> you have to accept the help and you have to accept their version of it. It's not going to be yours, and, but and that's the hardest thing for me is lowering my standards so that when I send my 12-year-old in with a toilet brush, you know, she's not going to get everything. I just decided to become the person I needed. That was it. Yeah. So I just remember being 21, terrified, not really sure what was going on, not really knowing what to do with my post-pregnancy body, with my new child, with my relationship with my partner. And um, so I started just becoming the information and the person and the presence that I really needed and wanted. And now I'm trying to be the person that pushes the boundaries to make sure that my daughters are walking into a safer world and a better yep. world and a more equal world. So I'm happy to be out the front taking the fire and being criticised and being called outrageous and opinionated. Oh my God, imagine being a woman and having an opinion. It's disgraceful. <laughs> How controversial. Um, there are all those words, aren't they, that are good always. words for men, bad words for oh, women. Ambitious. If I was a man, I would be ambitious, a leader, you know, I'd be strong. But if I, because I'm a woman, I'm a diva, I'm a bitch, I'm difficult. Um, but I've learned to let that go. I mean, that's followed me my whole career, my whole life. And if being a diva means I speak up for what I want, you know, I'm happy to say no to things that don't feel right, and, and I know what I want, then I'm happy to cop a diva. Like, whatever, fine, good. My mum, who's backstage with Elio now, my dad, who still picks my kids up in the morning and takes them to school, and he comes and cooks me dinner a couple of times a week if I'm really busy. Uh, my husband, obviously, um, well, he needs more like lists and stuff, didn't know what to do. Um, my eldest daughter, she is incredible. I'll get home today to dinner cooked, the house clean, and all these school uniforms washed. Mainly because she knows I have to pick her up before I am drunk from an after party, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> And my best friend, Michael Lucas, who's been my best friend since I was 11. And the six gay men who are my dear closest friends also. You, Claire, our other friend. I know, I have amazing people around me. And you'll all get me, like, stage one meltdown is mum yep. and Michael Lucas. You'll normally get me at about stage three when I've thought it through and I need to be told what to say so I won't offend everyone. <laughs> Jamila takes all the swearing and threats out of my things. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have 
a great community around me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do the, the stuff I'm doing at all. So I was doing breakfast radio. I was very unhappy. Um, there was a lot of animosity behind the scenes that contractually I'm not allowed to talk about. Um, <laughs> I was getting up at uh, three o'clock in the morning. I was worried I was going to lose another pregnancy. Um, and it, the media were writing horrible things about me and I wasn't allowed to defend myself because of contractual reasons. I was being called all the things I'm terrified of. She's difficult. No one will work with her. She, and I was saying no to a lot of things at work because I was pregnant. And I didn't want to get in a coffin full of spiders, guys. You know, I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to do stunts that treat the audience like they don't have brains. You know, I didn't want to yeah. do gotcha calls. I didn't want to do all the crap stuff you guys hear on commercial radio. And so... Yeah, I would have been pretty hard to work with, I imagine, because I just kept saying, nah, I'm not doing that. So um, that pregnancy up until quitting, so I quit when I was about six months. I just went to my boss and said, I can't do this anymore. And it was a very high-profile job. Sydney Breakfast Radio is insane. It is competitive. Yeah. It pays you a lot of money. Um, and it should because it nearly destroyed my mental health completely. I was up against Kyle Sanderlands every day, and weekly he would have a crack at me in the media. And... Um, you know, Kyle is a, is a person. Um, <laughs> but I actually know that he likes me and respects me as a broadcaster. And Jackie sent me a text message saying, you know, Kyle's actually one of your biggest fans. And I was like, well, could you please ask him to stop calling me names in the newspaper every week? And, you know, it, it's a big, scary market, Sydney, and it's considered the holy grail of broadcasting. So I started out here at SAFM. Um, and it'll always be SAFM. What's it called now? Hit something. Nah, SAFM, goss. For God's sake. And I started out here with Limo. Um, I used to fill in for Millie. And uh, Limo and I got... A, and still one of my dear friends, so... What's I mean, with the names in uh, radio? No, Sorry. Limo is Limo. Well, I mean, that's... Yeah, but why oh, does yeah. everyone have to Zappy, be something Dicko, or something Well, they shortened my name. On Australian Idol, I was Amelia. And then they're like, oh, it's a bit ethnic. So I became M. That's how I'm M. Rossiano. I was always Amelia. And then, um, yeah, one of the actual bosses said, oh, it's a bit long for radio, Amelia Rossiano. Oh. How about M? And I was so scared. I was so grateful to have a job out of Idol because I couldn't sing. And um, I said, sure, call me whatever you want. <laughs> so it suck. <laughs> Too ethnic. Yay, Australia. <sighs> yeah. So pregnancy was hard. That, but then once I quit work, I was a new woman. Yeah. I was able to relax into the pregnancy. I got the test results back saying that everything was okay and that yep. he was healthy. And, um, you know, I, was, I still was scared to lean into the pregnancy because I'd been so hurt losing my other baby at 16 weeks. And I was scared to get attached to another baby and I was scared to go again. And the women who go again time and time and know that they're putting themselves out into that intimate emotional fire are my heroes. Like, I, do, I don't know how they keep going back because I don't know that I would have survived losing a second pregnancy. I gave birth on the hottest day in record in Melbourne for 38 years. It was 42 degrees by 7am and um, the air conditioning had broken in our house because of the, you know how the, the government are like, okay, it's going to be really hot, you guys get it here. Can everyone just turn their air conditioners down to one? And everyone's like, <laughs> I did that. I was like, I am 49 weeks pregnant. I am going to have this on like sub-Antarctic. Can we bring in another air conditioner? Can I plug in directly to the mains? And our air conditioning went out. So I had a planned C-section because, um, oh, for so many reasons. 
I'm old. Uh, the baby was enormous. And I'd had to have emergency seizures for the other one, so I'm not going through that again. So we planned it all, lovely, very civil. We got in the car, we were driving to the hospital and Scott decided, I'd been fasting, and Scott decided to eat an entire orange sitting next to me, like of all the fruit. So first he peeled it with his teeth and then he was, sp- <laughs> and then he was spitting the peel in the side of the door and I'm like, <sighs> the sound of the chewing and the sucking, I want to punch you him. smell, when you're pregnant everything. you can smell yeah, everything. Also, starving. I mean, I was eating every 25 minutes. I needed a snack while I was eating for the next, planning the next meal. Then we get to the hospital and we're a bit early. So he decides he needs a second breakfast. His name's a bit parched. So I'm sitting there while he has himself a toasted sandwich and a coffee. And then we go up, they get me ready for the surgery. And he says to me, oh, I'm just going to go get a quiche. I said, but they're going to be here. He goes, no, nah, they never come on time. Yeah. I said, it's not like a flight. I'm booked in to give birth. Because now nah, I'll be back. Sure enough, two seconds after he's gone, they come to wheel me out to surgery. So we call him. The phone starts ringing next to me. Why would you take your phone when your wife's about to give birth? <laughs> Why would you? So he, we're calling him, we're calling him. Finally, he turns up, he's got his quiche, and the nurses all flock to him because he's hot, he's in scrubs, and he looks like someone from Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> and they're like, oh, can we keep that warm for you while she delivers? I'm like, ah, excuse me. As long as your quiche Lorraine's warm, doll, don't worry about me. So they wheeled me into surgery. They, they did the things. The anaesthetic started wearing off, which was terrifying. I was in there a bit too long because my surgeon from the last one had left my internal organs a mess. Did you know that there are sloppy surgeons? I just assume all surgeons are really good and know what they're doing. But my OB opened me up. And he's like, oh, my God, your bladder's attached to your ovaries. And, your... and I'm like, oh. And he's like, hang on. And so Lloyd's in there cutting. And I'm like, I said to Lloyd, but the baby was out by this stage. I said, Lloyd, I'm starting to feel that. And the anaesthetist was like, oh, I said that in one go. It was like, uh, we need to wrap this up in three minutes. And I was just lying there going, oh, my God. I'm pretty sure I signed something saying I wouldn't tell you guys about that, but that's okay. All's well that ends well. Um, <laughs> and then there he was, and it was the most, when they place your baby on your chest for the first time, it is the most magical, wonderful, overwhelming experience but I was also a bit sad because I didn't get to do that with Ray, my baby that I'd lost. So it's this weird combination of joy and grief that no one really talks about. Um, and then it's just been total joy and love ever since. Like he's completely saved my life and my mental health and um, put everything into perspective. I was so obsessed with what people were writing about me last year and what people thought of me. And then I had this baby and it was like, oh, I don't care. He thinks you're magic. He, yeah. he, I'm his favourite. Do you know how good it is to be someone's favourite person? Not to see dread when you arrive home as I do on my <laughs> kids' faces. Like Elio is happy to see me 10 seconds after I leave, I'll come back. And he's like, oh my God, you're back. <laughs> it's addictive. I copped it in school a lot as well. I think I was the only, I was an immigrant's kid. I had a different last name. I was the only Italian person. You know, my dad wasn't born in this country. I used to get called Stinky Box. Not because of a personal hygiene situation, <laughs> because my lunchbox would be full of like pastrami and, and um, cheese and it would be like a beautiful, like, what now you'd pay 50 bucks to have an antipasto platter. I had an antipasto platter in my Astro Boy lunchbox and, and everyone else would have a Vegemite sandwich and a pack of chips and a Prima. And what do you guys call them in Adelaide? Primas, juice box. Juice box in juice Adelaide, box. isn't it? And um, 
And uh, I, all I ever wanted was a Vegemite sandwich and a packet of chips and a juice box. And my, my, like you could smell my lunchbox down the hallway. So I used to get called Stinky Box. It was terrible. But now, like, I think back to I only ever ate stuff we kind of grew in the garden. Like, I had a proper wog upbringing. And now, like, I'm so grateful for that. And my kids have had that. So... I think all the things that happened to me in, in school and in high school, I got called so many names. Um, you know, I had really short hair. I was really muscular and athletic and um, over the top and ridiculous. All of that has kind of shaped me into who I am today. So in a way, looking back at the time, it was awful, but now I'm kind of grateful for it because it makes me self-aware and it makes me kinder and it also makes me stronger. And But in terms of the stuff people write about me online, I'd be lying if I said to you it didn't still hurt my feelings because it does. I'm, a, I'm sensitive. And um, I, so you guys could write a thousand positive comments about a show and if one person writes one negative thing, I will stay up all night. I will contact them. I will ask them to justify it. I will track them down. I will go and stalk all their social media accounts and find out if there's any validation in what they've said. So, um, you know, like I said before, try to not put your self-esteem in what other people think of you. Find a safe space within yourself. I used to obsessively read everything that everyone wrote about me because I'm a performer and I'm needy and, um, you know, I, I was looking for positive reinforcement mm. all the time. And in the end, I just realised after a lot of therapy and I'm married to a life coach um, that you can't place your self-worth within the opinions of other people. And as RuPaul says, what someone else thinks of you is none of your business. My only advice to you is try not to let other people tell you, you know, how you should feel about yourself check in with yourself. I've gotten really good at checking in with myself. And if you've read my book, you'll know I've got a checklist. Um, when was the last time you ate? When was the last time you had water? When was the last, how much sleep have you had? When was the last time you exercised? What have you got coming up? And if you can answer all those questions and you're, you're good for all of them and you're still not okay, that's when I go to my therapist. So, but it's taking me to 40 to figure that out. And a lot of heartbreak and a lot of people writing awful things about me and deciding that I'm this horrible, heinous, diva awful person um, to get to be being okay with myself. I'm happy. I think the fact that I'm finally pretty happy is starting to really show through my skin and my hair stopped falling out. I don't cry myself to sleep so often. Not so many bags, you know. Um, I think it's so gross, but I think being really happy is showing through my everything at the moment. And a lot of people, you guys have been commenting online, you look so happy. Even when I put photos up with no makeup on, which is often... I always get, oh, you look so happy. And I much prefer someone to write, you look so happy than you look so beautiful. Um, I think, and I always try to say to my girls, you look strong today. You know, you look powerful today. You look, you look smart today. I really have been conscious about never saying the first thing is you look beautiful. I mean, it's okay to tell girls they're beautiful. That's fine. But don't make it the first thing. So, um, yeah, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's a, it's a lie. You should have seen me at four o'clock this morning. That's kicking off in six weeks yep. and it's the biggest tour I've ever done. I'm trucking a set for the first time. Normally, it's just us with lots of suitcases carrying feathers. But um, this time, I've got a full proper set that's been designed by the guy who does all the Moomba floats. So, it's really low key. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I'm so proud of it and I hope that people love it. I'm writing a fiction book at the moment, which is like comedy erotica. It's the comrotica genre I've invented. Um, so I'm really, I'm just working through my first big sex scene at the moment. And it's really, writing an intelligent feminist sex scene is really challenging and yeah. fun. Because 
all the other sex scenes I think we've ever seen have usually been directed or written by men. So the neutral gaze is the male gaze for us. That's all we've ever really seen. So I've been researching really good female and feminist adult things. And, and when you say researching, watching. Watching and reading. Yeah. And there's a sense, when you watch something that's been directed, written or produced by a woman, it comes from the feel of things. Men do the physicality. So there's more thrusting for men and more feeling for women. Um, so that's been a really interesting experience. And a podcast, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm going to be doing that second half of the year. And I'm also working on starting a community, a membership situation, so um, I can really not ever have to do radio or whatever else again. Thank you so much for joining us. For more inspiring insights, make sure you listen to the rest of our four-part series, Westfield Women in Conversations, in partnership with Dove. And if you're not already a member of Future Women and you're interested in joining our growing movement, head to futurewomen.com to join the club.